It's funny how many people there are here today. <laughs> it's funny, Dave. Yeah. You're, this thing, yeah. Dave always talks about how much he hates talking in front of people, but he's up here like every week. And uh, <laughs> I'm probably a bit more uncomfortable than he is. Um, so, uh, beginning of this. beginning of this, we kind of get the context for what's going on here. Um, before Jesus hops into this parable, he has his authority challenged by the chief priests and the elders, um, and before he would answer their questions, to their question about where his authority came from, uh, he asked them the question of whether or not the baptism of John was from heaven or from men, and of course that put them in a difficult situation because if they said it was from God, then they would be guilty of not believing him. But if it was from, uh, if it was from men, if they said it was from men, a lot of the people that were also at the temple believed John to be a prophet, so they uh, feared their response. Um, so they kind of took a, they took the silent route and said that they didn't know. And um, then Jesus said, "Now they will answer this quote." answer that question, which is funny because he kind of goes into asserting his authority through this parable afterwards, kind of answering it after all, um, but just not with a yes or no like they're trying to get him to do. Um, so when he jumps into this parable of the two sons, I think at first glance, when you look at it, it seems like it is, has a lot to do with the person who did the right thing at the end, uh, went working field, everything like that. It's like a, it's a passage about doing the right thing, but um, I think this is one thing we Anyone who's spent any amount of time in Christianity knows and understands it's that Christianity is not a works-based religion. And I think any simplistic reading of something that says you did the right thing, therefore you did the will of the Father, I think we need to push back against that. I think that's what Jesus has always done in all of his teaching. Um, I mean, he's addressing an audience that defines their righteousness by their works-based system, obedience to the law. Um, so if the passage just ended with with the, the first son being, the, with their answer being correct, with the, the first son being the one who did the will of the Father, they wouldn't really have had any problem with that. They would have just kind of all gone home. Um, and it was, they... Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Um, and that was a real slap in the face towards their understanding of what they thought was going on. Um, they were fine with the parable before this. Uh, after this, it kind of flips the whole meaning of it on its head. Um, so what, you, what's, what Jesus is trying to say, or hoping that they'll understand, is that... Um, the. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes gaining the kingdom before them, they would have understood themselves to be, they would have understood themselves to be the first son, the ones who kept the law, who did the good works. And now that these are the ones getting in before them, what Jesus is saying here is that this is, 
their response to the father was was trust by trusting in the father and in his the father's authority that's what that's what the will of the father is I think it's easy for us to try and make a moral distinction between the two brothers where one is good and the other is bad but that's not what Jesus is doing here we're only given a sentence about each and both and what we can see from it is that both sons sinned one sinned directly against his father straight up the first son said no I'm not working the field and uh, most of us have somewhat of an idea of how much of a patriarchal society that was and that's just something you didn't do you didn't I mean we have the whole parable of um, the the son who just disappeared and spent all his prodigal son yeah so we have the parable of the prodigal son right like he totally like it was a huge slap in the face of his father so much so that even when he came home his brother didn't want anything to do with him like this patriarchal society wasn't really something you messed around with and you just fell in line so his disobedience was still disobedience, and then the second, the second son's not showing up to do the work for whatever reason, which we're not really given, is still disobedience. So the, it's not really a question of who did the right or wrong thing. Um, and I think Capon sums this up, sums the understanding up really well when he says, "The repentance of one son cannot possibly have removed the factual goodness of his prompt compliance." It's not that either of the evils of the first are reformed away or the goodness of the second go into disregard. It is that one finally, and in living fact, takes his stand on trust in his father's authority while the other repudiates it. So back to the text. Um, for John came to you in the way of right... Uh, which, yeah, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards as to believe him. Uh, that last part didn't make it up there, so whoops. Um, I, and I think what's notable about this is the tense that Jesus is speaking of. He's not talking about former tax collectors or prostitutes entering the kingdom first. He's not giving any indication that entering first has anything to do with cleaning up their act. And it's based solely on the fact that they trusted what John had said about Jesus' coming. Or that if they didn't, after seeing Jesus, trusted in him. These weren't people, or these weren't professions that were just morally questionable. These were identities that marked them as sinners and outcasts in their society. But Jesus really didn't seem to be bothered by that at all. In fact, he never really seemed to be bothered by that with people. Moral policing just kind of wasn't his, uh, his forte, I guess. Um, and even when you look at the gospel narrative, it's, it, uh, it's four books, a full a narrative of four essentially similar narratives of 12 people who decide to follow Jesus that know really nothing about him and never really get anything right until maybe 30 years later when they write a book about him. It kind of comes together. Like, they don't really know what they're talking about most of the time. And when you read through it, it's like kind of fascinating, like how much they misunderstood and how, how patient Jesus was with that. Um, especially because Matthew, being a tax collector, rabbis didn't really go out of their way to, to call tax collectors, and tax collectors weren't really ready to jump on the religion train. Um, and, 
Yeah. So, and yeah, Jesus' little group of people made was, in, was made entirely up of people who, who missed the point. And that message resonated with and went out to the me- not really missing the point. There isn't a message missing the point. The, but Jesus resonated with, pe- with people and he drew them in. He drew in the unclean, the outcasts, the lawbreakers, and those who were suffering. They found comfort in his authority, not rejection or exclusion, like often happened under the religious systems of that time. The people who couldn't bring themselves to trust Jesus in his new way to work the vineyard after saying yes were the ones who knew they had everything all figured out, or perhaps the ones who had the most to lose if by their old system collapsing. All their hard work. All their studies, their tithes, would have been as good as what the sinners brought to the table if Jesus' authority was from God. They weren't ready for that descent. Pope Francis writes, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets, rather than a church which is unhealthy from, the, from being confined and from clean to its own security, more than... F- by fear of going astray, my hope is that we will be moved by the fear of remaining shut up with structures which give us false sense of security, within rules which make us harsh judges, within habits which make us feel safe, while at our door people are starving. And Jesus does not tire of saying to us, give them something to eat. This was a system that Jesus was always trying to dismantle, dismantle especially in this parable Jesus' proposition that the sinners were entering the kingdom before the religious leaders was one of the biggest reasons that they decided it was time to get rid of him. Um, The following parable after this is a very similar story, and um, it ends with basically the religious leaders being like, and then they were really mad at him and decided they wanted to kill him. So like, this was a big deal what he was saying. It was also right after he cleansed the temple, which didn't really make him too popular with them either. The religious structure made for their religious structure made for pious men and harsh judges, and for Jesus to suggest that those doing the will of the Father are the people who would make them unclean in the eyes of their God was heresy. They couldn't fathom a world where God would be all right with a church made up of dejected, hurting sinners who knew nothing of the law and had no regard for their traditions. But Jesus wasn't growing a kingdom of people who had all the answers. He was growing a kingdom of people that had been left by the wayside, who placed their trust in him and his upside-down kingdom, where the first are made last and the last are made first. Now, I think a lot of what, a lot of what Jesus exposes um, through his ministry is the issue of faith that we see in this parable. Um, do we decide to trust in God despite what we think we know about how to run our own lives? Um, or do we just choose our own path and kind of not show up for the work? Um, and not work is in good deeds. Please don't misunderstand that. Um, but just not show up and trust God. Um, in Matthew 19, um, everyone's kind of familiar with this. Um, passage, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who uh, and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, 
Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I think the point is, the point's really just how much harder um, it makes, how much harder stuff makes it for us to trust God. We've almost, a lot of us here, regard, I mean, obviously there's different economic statuses in every church, but for the most part, like most people are getting by, in my social circle at least, I don't know anyone who's not about to, who's about to be out on the streets, and usually they have a safety net or support system that wouldn't really allow that. Um, but a lot of us have really lost the ability to, to pray, give me this day my daily bread. Um, I think the more comfortable we are, we can create this world around us um, that kind of blocks us off for the suffer, blocks us off for the suffering of others instead of being in it with them, um, like Jesus was. And we have just so many things we can distract ourselves with um, to fill up our time and find reasons to really not not think too much about anything other than our own our own needs um, but I think uh, even the, the proverb that we looked at at the beginning um, that we read at the beginning I think the, the writer of this really gets a good understanding of that give me neither poverty nor riches feed me with food that is my portion that I may be full and that I may not be full and deny you and say who is the Lord or that I may not be in want and steal. Um, I think the beauty of that statement is how aware the writer is of how much or how too little, how how having too much or too little can affect our ability to to trust God. Uh, the point really is that like the more we have to lose, the harder yeah, the harder it is to say to say yes to God. And I think it's easy to villainize. Um, villainize the religious leaders of that day for for buying so much into their system and having a really difficult time when it gets shaken up um, but I don't really think that they were always the villains we make them out to be um, I think we have we see plenty of that in our own churches today uh, I mean people it's very frequent for them to set up a system of morality whereas when you don't fit into what they expect of you they set these rules and these expectations until you can like I don't know check off their boxes and be restored you know and that often causes people a lot more hurt than than it actually fixes anything it's like it's like we can't as a church accept like a room full of people who are broken and hurting and that are there just because they decided to trust in God even if they're really kind of falling apart like it'll hurt our image and make people not really care about this because the like as though the idea is that it just you say yes to God and everything gets fixed and everything's all better. But I don't. Th I think everybody knows it's not really the end of the story for a lot of people. Things don't always get that much better for people. And I think if we had a a space that allowed people to feel accepted, despite what they know or despite what they've done or what they're doing, you'd certainly give people a lot more of the safety net that they might not have, or you give people the hope that I think Jesus was tr giving giving those same kinds of people. Um, I guess in that same vein, we can look at what, um, it sounds, the beginning part of this sounds really harsh and it's really interesting, but uh, we can look at what St. Paul says and I think it really does echo this idea. 
And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over their depraved mind to those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that they who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therefore, now the people he's actually addressing in Romans, the Christians, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And to me, like, that kind of levels the playing field a little bit. I think it's easy to kind of quote that first part about how much everyone else is worse, but we've got it all together. But Paul doesn't really give anyone that excuse. It's kind of like, it's almost like a joke the way he presents it. Like, like you can hear everyone like, cheering, getting all riled up because he's just like, just pointing out how terrible their enemies are. And then he says, oh, by the way, you're all the exact same and you don't have an excuse to judge I think um, Snodgrass echoes kind of the same sentiments, but also um, sums up the parable really well when he says, this parable should caution us against assuming that Involvement in, in religious life and claiming religious authority are guaranteed legitimacy of theological accuracy. Those of us engaged in religious life should be the least presumptuous about ourselves and about those who we think are on the outside. We need to stop making judgment calls on other people. Jesus was constantly trying to get people to reflect inwardly. To stop judging our neighbors and to start loving them regardless of whether or not there is something about what they think, do, or say that you may disagree with or that makes you uncomfortable. There... I don't have a slide for this, but I ended up bringing this quote anyway because I thought it was fantastic and kind of explains well the situation that we find ourselves in quite often um, it's another Capon quote and he says for no matter how much lip service we give to the notion of free grace and dying love we do not like it it is just too indiscriminate it lets rotten sons and crooked tax farmers and common tarts into the kingdom and it thumbs its nose at really good people and it does not and it does that gallingly for no more reason than the gospel's shabby exaltation of dumb trust over worthy works. We will continue to sing Amazing Grace in church, but we will be jolly well judicious when it comes to teaching the riffraff what it actually means. We will assure them, of course, that God loves them and forgives them, but we will make it clear that we expect them to clean up their act before we clasp them too seriously to our bosom. The entire point... <laughs> That's the point. Like, I mean, that's it. That's the parable, you know? Um, there's a lot of people who walk in who... The church isn't always the most welcoming place to people who feel like 
they're on the outsides. And I don't know why. I think most people do their kind of their best effort to try to not. I don't. I don't think it is like this collective agreement that people aren't welcome. I mean, no one's really sitting, sitting around trying to figure out ways to exclude people. But I don't know. It's something about the way. I don't know. I guess it's something about the way the system kind of all comes together. Uh, maybe that that people, a lot of people might not feel welcome, or at least to completely be themselves. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people even in this room that have. Even David was saying earlier, before he was talking about communion, you're the only one that knows what you were doing last night, and it could have been giving all your money to the poor, and it could have been anything else. Um, but I think the fact that people, and they don't really know how to push back against that, but the fact that people don't know how, like the, we don't set up a system where people can... Um, can be themselves. And I, I think that's what's beautiful about what Cana does with an open communion table because I think that's really what Jesus is doing. He saw all these people who are on the outside that couldn't fit into a religious system and said, just, yeah, you can come with me. I just A lot of people's stories don't, don't come together the way we want them to in the time frame that we want them to. And they don't always meet our expectations. And I, I think the good news, though, is that there's no statute of limitations on trusting God. The choice to have faith in God, in a God who is for everyone, despite how well we put together, despite how well we are put together, or how long it takes us to start getting put back together. Even for the religious authorities, Jesus was speaking to, the way was still open; they weren't excluded. We just don't need to be properly. It's not about being properly educated or having all the right answers. It's. It's simply choosing to show up, to, to show up to the vineyard regardless of whether or not we said we would or not.